Well, it's my pleasure to introduce our main speaker for this evening. He is an author, a speaker, a researcher with Answers in Genesis. He has lectured in 25 countries, if you count Bakersfield, 26. (laughs) He has a degree in math, mathematics, a Master of Divinity, and a PhD in the history of geology. He served as a missionary with Campus Crusade for Christ for 26 years. You can see a shortened version of his PhD dissertation called The Great Turning Point, The Church's Catastrophic Mistake on Geology Before Darwin. He's co-edited and contributed to Coming to Grips with Genesis, Biblical Authority and the Age of the Earth. He's edited and contributed to Searching for Adam, Genesis, and the Truth About Man's Origin, which is a biblical scientific defense of the literal truth of Genesis about Adam. He and his wife, Margie, have been happily married since 1976 and have eight children, and I have just heard tonight 15 grandchildren. And so would you please give a warm Bakersfield welcome to Dr. Terry Mortensen. Well, good evening. It's good to see you, and uh, I would like to uh, have my wife stand up because um, she is the uh, great mother of my eight kids. I do work for Answers in Genesis. Uh, Are we up there yet? There we go. It's a ministry based in uh, northern Kentucky in the Cincinnati area, and we are committed to proclaiming the gospel and defending the truth of the Bible from the very first verse. And uh, in 2007, we opened the Creation Museum. How many of you have been to the Creation Museum? Okay, the rest of you need to repent in sackcloth and ashes. (laughs) I want to show you a short video about the Creation Museum. We've had over uh, three three million visitors since we opened. Literally all over the world, we have uh, amazing exhibits proclaiming the, the truth of Genesis, and there's uh, things for all ages. We built the whole museum around what we call the seven seas of history, which I'll be talking about. We have animatronic people, animatronic dinosaurs. We talk about geology and the flood. We have an amazing allosaurus fossil valued at over a million dollars. We talk about the origin of so-called races of people. and uh, So it's a great place to learn. We've got an insect collection, and uh, we have beautiful gardens, and a petting zoo, and you can actually ride a camel. If you're really into zip lining, we have an amazing zip lining course. So I encourage you to come to the Creation Museum. And then in 2016, we um, opened... Uh, Noah's Ark, which is uh, about 45 minutes from the museum. It's a replica built to the dimensions in the Bible. And since we opened in 2016, we've had over 2 million visitors from all over the world. And uh, it's built almost completely out of wood. We have a few metal connectors uh, and uh, air conditioning ducts and water pipes. But otherwise, it's wood. And we show people how they could have stored food and water uh, what their living arrangements might have been lo- been like. Um, Noah is animatronic. He answers questions. And uh, we have animals in cages. And we answer the, the, the questions that people have today. People, uh, questions like, well, 
how many animals were on the ark and how did they feed all those animals and how did they get fresh water and fresh air and the really big question what did they do with all the manure and uh, people have these questions and there are things for people of all ages to to learn and we have an Ararat zoo there where you can uh, pet animals and ride animals and so uh, encourage you to make a trip. If you're planning a big vacation, don't waste your money on Disney World. Go to the Creation Museum and Ark Encounter. You'll learn a lot, you'll have a lot of fun, and your faith will be strengthened. Well, those two uh, attractions cost a lot of money to make. Why did we make them? It's what I want to talk to you about tonight. Creation versus evolution, why it matters. I've had the privilege, uh, as Pastor said, of speaking in 25, now 27 countries, and I'll be going to my 28th uh, next weekend when I go to um, Kosovo. But I have discovered in my travels that America is a very unusual country in lots of ways. But one way that America is really unique is that America is the country with the greatest number of churches and seminaries and Christian colleges, the greatest number of Christian radio and television and bookstores and resources. We have books, DVDs, magazines, music, movies, concerts, camps, conferences. There's no country that is a close second place. But if you've been paying attention to this country over the last few Uh, decades, and especially the last few years, you'll realize that America is becoming less Christian every day. It's becoming increasingly anti-Christian. Why is that? Why is it that the country with the greatest number of Christian resources is becoming less and less Christian, even anti-Christian? Our first president, George Washington, said this in his farewell address in 1796. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. John Adams, our second president, said, We have no government armed with power, capable of contending with human passions, unbridled by morality and religion. And he was a Bible-believing Christian. He was talking about Christianity. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Benjamin Franklin, who was not a Christian, said this just before he died. I am convinced that the moral and religious system which Jesus Christ transmitted to us is the best the world has ever seen or can see. He also said, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters. And Charles Carroll of Carrollton, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence and the first senator from the state of Maryland, said this in 1800. Without morals, a republic cannot subsist any length of time. They, therefore, who are decrying the Christian religion, whose morality is so sublime and pure, are undermining the solid foundation of morals, the best security for the duration of free governments. Wow. We've come a long ways from those statements. Newsweek announced in a cover story in 2009 the decline and fall of Christian America. Harvard, Yale, and Princeton and other Ivy League schools were founded for preparing men for the gospel ministry. Today, they're temples of atheism where Christian ministry is very difficult. We are facing a moral crisis in this country that even many non-Christians are concerned about. 
millions of pages of pornography on the internet that are destroying people's lives, both men and women, including some Christian leaders who get hooked on internet pornography. We have murdered 60 million babies in the womb since Roe versus Wade in 1973. That's 10 times as many Jews as Adolf Hitler killed. The divorce rate inside the church is as high, well, actually, it's now higher than it is in the rest, in the secular world. And the reason is because secular people aren't getting married. They're just living together. Homosexual marriage is now the law of the land. We're having arguments about who can go in what locker rooms and boys who think their girls can be on the girls' wrestling team or and teen suicides are up. In fact, suicides are up in every state in the, in the union. We can't have the Ten Commandments in public buildings. We can't have prayer in Jesus' name in public schools. So what's going on in this country? And it's not just out there in the culture. We've got problems in the church. Two thousand. Uh, Uh, 18 years ago, in the year 2000, Barna Research reported, a minority of born-again adults, only 44%, and an even smaller proportion of born-again teenagers, 9%, are certain of the existence of absolute moral truth. So think about that. One out of 10 teenagers in the year 2000 who claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ believed in absolute right, absolute wrong, It doesn't matter what year, what time in history, what culture, what country, there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. The other nine out of ten either didn't believe that or aren't sure. That's a problem. And we're now 18 years on. Many of those professing Christians are now in the halls of Congress, state and local level, They're in corporate America. They're university professors. Two years after that survey, the American Family in Crises research by the Southern Baptist Council on Family Life uncovered some disturbing facts. Of the children raised in evangelical homes, 88% leave the church at age 18 and never return. And what this and other studies have shown is that this is not simply a Southern Baptist problem. This is happening across the denominational lines. We're losing anywhere from 60 to 80% of young people are walking away from the church and many are walking away from the faith that they were raised in when they graduate from high school. Well, we wanted to know why and so we commissioned America's research group to find out for us and they called around the country to 20,000 people to find 1,000 people that fit this description. They were between the ages of 20 and 29 They grew up in conservative Christian homes and churches, and they rarely or never go to church now. And we wanted to know why. And we published the results of that survey in 2009 in the book Already Gone. And we analyzed that survey, and we found out a lot of disturbing things in that survey. One of the questions we asked was, uh, when did they first start to have doubts about the truth of the Bible? And we thought the problem really started in college because the university is a very hostile place for the Christian today. But we were surprised. Most of them started to have doubts in high school, middle school, some even in grade school. They were getting questions that were causing them to doubt the Bible, and they weren't getting answers. They weren't getting answers at home. They weren't getting answers in youth group or Sunday school, and they weren't getting answers from the pulpit. 
And those questions were working like acid on their minds and their hearts. Well, we asked them uh, what influenced them the most to doubt the Bible. And 45% said it was the teaching of evolution in millions of years. And the people who didn't give that as their first answer were also influenced by those ideas. Now, those are the 20 to 29-year-olds who grew up in conservative churches who are no longer in the church. In 2015, we did another survey finding those 20 to 29-year-olds who grew up in conservative churches who are still in the church. And we published the results of that survey in the book, Ready to Return. And we found some very disturbing things. We asked them, should abortion be legal? 52% said yes or I'm not sure. We asked, is homosexual behavior sin? And of these 20 to 29-year-olds, 44% said no or I'm not sure. Does the Bible contain errors? 39% said yes or I'm not sure. And why do you think the Bible contains errors? 52% said it's the teaching of evolution in millions of years. So what do all these things have to do with each other? The growing anti-Christian attitudes in our culture... Uh, the growing moral crisis, the mass exodus of young people from the church. Well, Psalm 11.3 says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And foundations are very, very important. Uh, Here you have a really nice house. Square walls, square doors, carpet, curtains, wallpaper, good roof over the top, doesn't leak when it rains. But there's one thing about that house you don't see that's very important, and that is the foundation. And if the foundation has cracks in it, if the foundation has termites, it's only a matter of time. It might take years, it might take decades, but sooner or later, that house will look like that because the superstructure cannot stand if the foundation is not secure. I want to submit to you tonight that the book of Genesis is foundational to the whole rest of the Bible. Every major or minor doctrine in the rest of the Bible is built either directly or indirectly on the foundational truths of Genesis 1 to 11. And what we have seen happen over the last 200 years, as first the idea of millions of years was developed in the early 19th, late 18th, early 19th century, which I'm going to talk about tomorrow morning. And then Darwin came along and built on the same ideas with his theory of evolution. And then in the 20th century, the Big Bang Theory to explain the origin of the cosmos. The more that the church ignored those ideas and just taught Bible stories, the more that the church tried to harmonize those ideas with the Bible and didn't deal with those ideas, the more the church ignored or rejected Genesis the more we have seen the church and the once Christian West of Western Europe, Great Britain, and North America reject other doctrines as well. I could give a lot of examples of the foundational importance of Genesis. Take the doctrine of sin. The Bible has a lot to say about sin. We're all sinners. But where was the first sin? Genesis chapter 3. And what is sin? Well, sin is failing to live up to the national average of morality in America. No, that's not sin. Well, actually, that is sin (laughs) because the national average is so low. But that's not the biblical definition of sin. The biblical definition is sin is rebellion against the Creator. And every one of us in this room 
And every person on this planet who's ever lived is a rebel because we're descended from the first rebel. I assume that the majority of the people in this room tonight are saved, forgiven rebels, but we're all rebels because we're descended from Adam. Or consider clothing. I noticed you're all wearing clothes tonight. You can be glad I am. But why are we wearing clothes? Well, you know, we knew there would be air conditioning on in the church. But I know that if we were at a picnic and it was uh, the middle of July and it was blistering hot outside, you'd still be wearing clothes. Why? Well, the evolutionists say the reason we wear clothes is because our ape-like ancestor migrated out of Africa into Europe, took several million years, and over the course of that time they lost a lot of their hair. They got farther north into Europe, it got colder, and so they invented clothes to stay warm. Of course, if that's really true and you live where it's always hot, What's wrong with nude beaches? What's wrong with immodest clothing? I mean, animals don't wear clothes. So what's the difference if we do? Well, the difference is we're not just animals. We're made in the image of God. And the Bible says clothing came into the human race for a moral and a spiritual reason, not because the temperature changed. So we need to understand where clothing came from to understand the Bible's condemnation of nudity and immodest clothing. And we need to understand this because there's a lot of immodesty even in the church. So you have to understand where clothing came from. Or we could talk about the seven-day week. You know, every country of the world has a seven-day week. And you can determine the length of a, a month, a year, and a day by the movement of the heavenly bodies. But there's nothing up there that will tell you how long a week is. So where does that come from? It comes from the fact that God created in six days and rested on the seventh. Nations. I look around the audience tonight, and I don't see that everybody looks exactly alike. Some people have very dark skin. Some people have very light skin. Some people have uh, almond-shaped eyes. That's what we think. Asian people, actually, their eyes are round, just like uh, North American or Europeans. And then I know in, in California, you've got a lot of people that don't speak English as their mother tongue. Where did all those languages come from and all that diversity if we're all descended from Adam and Eve? Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, is the key. It explains the origin of the languages. And when we add our understanding of that event to our modern understanding of genetics, it's easy to explain where all the diversity of brown shades of brown skin color come from. We'll talk a little bit about that tomorrow night in my second, tomorrow afternoon in my second talk. The first coming of Christ is prophesied in Genesis 3. The second coming is prophesied indirectly through the events of Noah's flood. Or consider marriage. We've already alluded to this, but we live in a country today and really now in a world because there are many, many other countries who are doing the same thing where there's a very tiny but politically powerful minority who says, who says marriage is a man and a woman? Why can't it be a man and a man or a woman and a woman? And there are already people who are using the same kinds of arguments to say, why can't it be a man and three women? Or three men and one woman? Or three men? Or three women? And I haven't heard it yet, but I expect we're going to hear it that somebody's going to say, why can't it be a man and his dog or a woman and her cat? 
We can just define marriage any way we want. Well, Jesus was once asked a question about marriage and divorce. The Pharisees said, Moses permitted us to divorce our wives. What do you say, Jesus? And in Matthew 19, Jesus answered them and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And and he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But if you want God's perspective on marriage, you need to go back to the foundation of marriage. And he quoted from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And he clearly said, there are only two genders, male and female, and God created gender. And they're determined at conception. Then it's not a matter of my personal opinion or choice. And God created marriage. It wasn't a construct. It wasn't an invention of humans. God made marriage. And he said marriage is one man and one woman for life. And it's implied there, and Jesus uh, expands on it in Matthew, when he says that sexual relations are only for within marriage. And so adultery and fornication and divorce and pornography and rape, and homosexuality, and bigenderism, and transgenderism are wrong because it's contrary to God's created order and God's commands. And listen, God created the world the way he did, and he gave us his commands for our blessing, for our flourishing. And when we go against God's created order and God's commands, sooner or later... We're going to suffer personally, and if enough people rebel against God's created order and God's commands, society is going to suffer. Genesis is foundational to the doctrine of marriage. And the more over the last 200 years that the church has ignored or rejected Genesis, and particularly over the last 50 years, the more we have seen the, the culture and even many who still identify as Christian, as in the church, reject what the Bible says about marriage. But I want to focus in my remaining minutes on a few other doctrines I've found a lot of Christians haven't thought about. In all the countries I've been in, it's the same. And most of our theologians and Bible scholars haven't thought about which I've also seen in every country I've been in. And as I've been involved in the Evangelical Theological Society and have interacted with with, uh, theologians and have read their their books, they, they are not thinking about these issues. One of them is the doctrine of death. The Bible has a lot to say about death. We're all going to die someday. But why is there death? And why is it sometimes what we call tragic? Actually, I think all death is tragic. But I think of a little three-month-old baby that dies or a woman who dies a week after her wedding or the people that just died in Hurricane Micah, Michael. And speaking of hurricanes, why are there earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes and tsunamis that destroy not only people, but destroy the earth. Did God make the world that way? 
Did God make the world where three-month-old babies would die? Did God make the world with tsunamis and earthquakes and tornadoes? And then it's not just human death that we struggle with. We should struggle with the death that we see in the rocks of the earth. They're called fossils. And we're going to have a talk on fossils tomorrow. But the question is, all over the earth, on every continent, there are thousands of feet of sedimentary rocks containing billions of fossils, former living things that have been turned to stone. We're living on a massive graveyard. Why is it there? Did God make the world that way? And when we look at that fossil record, we don't just see evidence of death. We see evidence of pain and killing and disease and thorns and and extinction. And for the last 200 years, the scientific majority has been telling the world that it is an absolute proven scientific fact. Two plus two is four, and those rock layers are millions of years old. But if we're going to believe what the Bible has to say about death, we need to reject that idea. Because the, the, the biblical view of death and the evolutionary view of death are diametrically opposed to each other. You see, in the evolutionary view, you have millions of years of death and bloodshed and violence and, and disease, asteroids slamming into the earth, wiping out all the dinosaurs supposedly 65 million years ago. It's nature red in tooth and claw. It's the survival of the fittest, which means that billions of unfit didn't survive. And it's that process, according to the evolutionists, that led to man's existence. But the Bible says exactly the opposite. It says man was created in a perfect world, a world with with no death and disease and suffering, no natural disasters. Man sinned against God, and that brought the judgment of God on the whole creation. So in evolution, you have death before man. In the Bible, you have man before death. You cannot believe both of those things at the same time. One of those views is right, and the other one is wrong. And I believe what God said. And look at what he said. On day six, after he created Adam and Eve, he said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. So man was originally vegetarian. He wasn't supposed to eat the animals. He was supposed to eat the plants and the fruit of the plants. In fact, God did not give permission to eat meat until after Noah's flood, Genesis 9-3. God said, as I gave you the green plant, now I give you all things. But the very next verse says this, And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. So the animals were also vegetarian. And notice the emphasis of the verse. It says, and to every beast, and to every bird, and to everything that moves. Not to some, to every. So originally, the alligator, the eagle, the lion, the Tyrannosaurus rex were vegetarian. And God tells us what he thinks about his creation at this point. The very next verse. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. But it didn't stay very good for very long because God gave Adam and Eve a test and they failed the test. And in Genesis 3, we read the consequences of that fall and sin. And we need to pay careful attention to what the text says because there are Christian theologians and scientists today who are telling the church that the only thing that happened in Genesis 3 was that man died spiritually. 
Well, man did die spiritually in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve hid themselves from God, their relationship with God was broken. But it tells us a lot more. The very first creature that God judged was the serpent who deceived Eve. And God said, on your belly you will crawl. It was a physical judgment. Now, we don't know whether that changed the physical appearance or anatomy of the creature or just the physical behavior, but it was a physical judgment. That same verse says, Cursed are you, serpent, more than or above all cattle and beasts of the field. So animals were cursed. Verse 16 says that Eve was judged with increased pain in childbirth. In verse 19, Adam and Eve were judged physically with the death process beginning. And we know it's physical death Because they already died spiritually in verse 8 when they hid themselves from God. And here God says, from dust you came and to dust you shall return. In verse 17, the ground was cursed. And in verse 21, it's implied that God killed the first animals to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness because of sin. It was the first blood sacrifice. A picture of what would come through the Jewish sacrificial system which was a picture of what would come through the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And then we turn to verse 18, and it says, Both thorns and thistles, the ground shall grow for you. So if God cursed the earth with thorns after Adam sinned, we've got a big problem if we accept millions of years, as most Christians around the world do today, and as most theologians in our evangelical colleges and seminaries do today. The problem is... There are fossil thorns and thistles in rock layers that the evolutionists say are three to 400 million years old. If those, th- if those thorns and thistles and those rock layers are really that old, then God lied. Thorns and thistles didn't come into the creation after Adam's sin. They were already in the creation for hundreds of millions of years. But if God is telling the truth, and I believe he is, then this fact alone means those millions of years are a lie. They never happen. They're the result of faulty dating methods based on faulty assumptions, some of which we'll look at tomorrow. And then we've got another problem if we accept millions of years because many dinosaurs had cancer, researchers have discovered. Their tumors were like those of human patients, showing that cancer has been around essentially unchanged for a very long time. Diseases look the same, independent of what critter is affected. Cancer in dinosaur bones. What's the problem? Well, the problem is that according to the evolutionists, those dinosaurs existed 245 to 65 million years before man. So if, if those creatures really lived that long ago, then we had cancer in the creation before Adam in a time period that God called very good which then means that God called cancer very good. But what kind of a God would call cancer very good? I don't know any humans who think cancer is good. I submit to you, not the God of the Bible. And I submit to you that ultimately, the idea of millions of years is an assault against the very character of God. Paul tells us in Romans that we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. It's waiting to be liberated, he said, and it will be liberated when Christians receive their resurrection bodies. And so, from cover to cover, the Bible says the same consistent message. 
We start with a very good world. No death, no disease, no natural disasters. Man sins and that brings death and disease and extinction and earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes. Jesus was born into that world. It's a fallen world, a cursed creation, no longer very good. Oh, it still bears the evidence of God's creative handiwork in the beautiful plants and animals and amazing human beings and the mind-bogglingly complex DNA molecule and the orderly movement of the heavenly bodies. But if we look with open eyes, we also see the evidence of his curse. And the Bible says that Jesus is coming again, and he's going to restore the creation. Acts 3.21 says that he has ascended to heaven until the restoration of all things. Colossians 1 says that by his blood all things are redeemed, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And in Revelation 22 it says, verse 3, that there will be no more curse. But if we accept the millions of years, then whether we realize it or not, what we're really believing is that the creation has always been like it is today, with death and disease and suffering and hurricanes and tornadoes. And if that's really true, given what God says in Genesis 1 about six times saying the creation was good and then saying it was very good, if that's really the case then what should we believe about the future when God says there isn't going to be any more crying, no more pain, and no more curse? I guess that doesn't mean what it says either. So we've got millions of years of death and disease and suffering to look forward to? That is absolutely incompatible with the biblical message. I've met a lot of Christians or read, read things by Christians who they either say or imply... It doesn't matter when God created, how God created, or how long he took to create. Don't worry about that. Let the scientists worry about that. Just believe that God created and believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. But whenever I hear that kind of reasoning, I know that person has not thought through this issue of death. Because the conflict over the age of the earth is a conflict over two histories of death. In the biblical view, no death at the beginning, no death at the end when Jesus comes again. Sandwiched between those two events, we have death and disease and suffering. And the Bible calls death an enemy. It's a temporary part of history. But in the evolutionary view, as long as there's been life, there's been death. As long as there will be life, there will be death. It's been going on for millions of years. It's going to continue for millions of years. So why do you cry when your dog dies? Why do you cry when your grandmother dies or your spouse or your child? It's normal. It's natural. And yet everything in our soul says it's not right. It shouldn't be that way. And we cry. And we should cry. Two different histories of death. In the church today, there are a lot of different views. Progressive creation, theistic evolution, the framework hypothesis, the gap theory, and I could talk about a lot of other views. The cosmic temple view, the analogical day view, the day gap day view, the revelatory day view, the promised land view. It's amazing how many views of Genesis there are. They all have different ways of interpreting Genesis, but they all have one thing in common. They all accept the millions of years of death and bloodshed and violence. And there are lots of biblical and scientific reasons why we reject those views. But a major reason is we can't accept the millions of years 
without destroying what the Bible says about the original very good creation, what it says about the present fallen cursed creation, and what it says about the future redemptive work of Christ. So Genesis is foundational to the doctrine of death. And when Christians and when churches ignore Genesis or try to harmonize the Bible with evolution, it destroys the Bible's teaching on death. And it makes it virtually impossible to answer the number one skeptical question, which I have no doubt people in Florida and Georgia and North and South Carolina are asking. And that is, if there's a loving, all-powerful, good God, why is there death and suffering in the world? If you don't believe Genesis, you don't have a good answer. Well, that leads right on to the gospel. Genesis is foundational to the gospel. And the very first promise of the Messiah, the Savior, is right there in Genesis 3. And note, before God even pronounced judgment on Adam and Eve, he gave the first promise of the Messiah. It's a very obscure promise. It doesn't tell us very much. It just says that there's going to be a a male offspring of Eve who's going to undo the work of the serpent, which later scripture tells us was empowered by Satan. But then as we go through the rest of the Old Testament, we have more prophecies about that coming Messiah, most of them already fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus of Nazareth. And then we come to the New Testament. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul calls Adam the first Adam, and he calls Jesus the last Adam. And he says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So Paul sees a very, very tight connection between what Adam did and what Jesus did. And we have a question we've been asking Christians all over the world wherever we speak on this issue. And the question is this, which Adam is not essential to the gospel? Well, you can't have the gospel without the last Adam. You have to have Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, did the miracles to prove that he was the unique son of God, died on the cross a substitutionary death to pay the penalty for your sins and my sins and the sins of the whole world so that anyone who would repent, who would turn from their sin, who would own their sin, who wouldn't make excuses for their sin, who would admit that there's nothing they can do about their sin problem and put their trust in Jesus Christ alone in his death and his resurrection, they would be forgiven and restored to a right relationship with God. And after his death and burial, he was raised from the dead. He ascended to heaven. And he's waiting until the Father sends him back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the judge of all the earth. You have to have the last Adam for the gospel. But I submit to you, we can't have the gospel without the first Adam either. Because if Adam wasn't a real man in a real garden with a real tree and a real wife who had a real conversation with a real serpent, and I don't know why we have trouble believing this, We have talking parrots today, and there's nothing miraculous about this. I was in Bolivia a few years ago, and I met a pastor who showed me on his cell phone a YouTube video of his two pet parrots singing Spanish worship songs. It was hilarious. I don't know, I don't know Spanish, but I could hear very clearly, Señor. (laughs) Now, they were just mimicking. But the Bible says that that serpent in Genesis 3 was empowered by a supernatural being called Satan, just 
as a donkey was empowered by the supernatural God to speak to the prophet Balaam. And if we say, well, I, you know, I don't know about those talking animal parts in the Bible. Listen, folks, if you don't believe those, you don't have any logically consistent basis to believe any miracle in the Bible. Because it doesn't take any more faith to believe that a supernatural being can make an animal talk than that he can part the Red Sea, make an axe head float, cause a virgin birth, and rise from the dead. You see, the Bible is not about the man upstairs. The Bible is about the almighty creator of heaven and earth. And he says that there is a being who is not equal to him, but more powerful than you and I, called Satan, who is the deceiver of the nations. So if the early chapters of Genesis are not history, if that's mythology, if that's make-believe, then Jesus died for a mythological make-believe problem, and he is a mythological make-believe savior offering us a mythological make-believe hope for the future. And the non-Christian world understands this better than a lot of Christians. Listen to the words of Frank Zindler, a prominent atheist in America. He said this in a debate with a Christian philosopher who sadly is compromised with evolution in millions of years. But listen to this atheist. The most devastating thing, though, that biology did to Christianity was the discovery of biological evolution. Now that we know that Adam and Eve never were real people, the central myth of Christianity is destroyed. If there never was an Adam and Eve, there never was an original sin. If there never was an original sin, there's no need of salvation. If there's no need of salvation, there's no need of a Savior. And I submit that puts Jesus, historical or otherwise, into the ranks of the unemployed. I think that evolution is absolutely the death knell of Christianity. And hundreds of millions of people in this country, in Western Europe, in communist countries, and in many other countries haven't even been willing to listen to the gospel, much less believe it, because they've been brainwashed into believing that this book is based on mythology. But the truth is, Jesus did die on a hill outside Jerusalem under the rule of Pontius Pilate, and the tomb was empty on the third day. Well, in our Creation Museum and in our literature, we, we talk about the seven C's of history. Seven key words that start with C, referring to seven key events to make sense of our world. And so we have creation, which explains why we live in this world with all these beautiful plants and animals and, and human beings. And then corruption, the fall of Adam and Eve and sin, which explains why we live in a world that has natural disasters and death and disease, catastrophe, Noah's flood, which explains why we live on a planet covered with thousands of feet of sedimentary rocks containing billions of dead things that have turned to stone, confusion, the Tower of Babel, which explains why we have different languages and different people groups, Christ, who came into the world to solve the problem that started in the garden, but he didn't come just to be a good example. He came to die on a cross to pay the penalty for your sins and my sins. And he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. And one day he's coming again to consummate history. The seven seas of history. They make sense of our world. But here's what's happened over the last 200 years. As first the idea of millions of years was developed, and then Darwin's theory, and then the Big Bang theory. Most of the church has ignored or rejected those first four C's. And once you reject or ignore those first four C's, 
it's not going to be any surprise that a lot of people are going to reject the last three C's as well. Genesis is foundational to the gospel. Destroy Genesis and you destroy the foundation of the gospel and make it unbelievable. Let me return to where I started. Genesis is foundational to morality. And the more that you teach children and adults and congressmen and presidents and Supreme Court judges and heads of Hollywood and heads of corporate America and university professors that they're just animals descended from some other animal which descended from pond scum which formed on an earth that formed by chance around a sun that formed by chance as a result of a big bang that happened by chance, the more you teach people that, the more they're going to reject Genesis, and the more they reject Genesis, the more they're going to reject biblical morality. It makes perfect sense in an evolutionary view. Listen to the words of William Provine, a leading evolutionist. He grew up in the church in the Midwest, but he was an atheist when he said this. Let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. There are no gods, no purposes, no goal-directed forces of any kind. There's no life after death. When I die, I'm absolutely certain that I'm going to be dead. That's the end for me. There's no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning to life, and no free will for humans either. Wow! Doesn't it excite you today? to know that there's absolutely no purpose or meaning to your life and there's no right or wrong. Now I know he doesn't really believe that. I know that if I walked into his office and stole his laptop, he wouldn't sit there and say, well, you can do whatever you want. There's no right or wrong. Hey, you can't do that. That's stealing. Hey, Dr. Provine, what's stealing? That's just your opinion. I don't agree. I know he doesn't believe it anymore because he died of cancer in 2015. You see, if six creation days are in your past, that means this book is true right from the very first verse. And that means that God made you and me, and he makes the rules. And it's not a matter of your opinion or my opinion or majority vote in my school or majority vote in the culture or majority vote in Congress or majority vote in the Supreme Court or unilateral decisions by a president. God makes the rules. And he says life begins at conception. And he says there are only two genders, and marriage is a man and a woman for life. And sexual relations are only for within marriage. And God makes his rules for our good and for our blessing. But if millions of years are in your past, then this book is not true. It's written by pre-scientific, primitive, superstitious Jews and Christians. So you can just make your own rules. What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. Which is a great idea. Unless, unless you're all African American and you live in my city and I'm white and I'm the mayor and a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Or you're all Jewish and you live in my country and my name is Adolf Hitler. Then it's not a nice idea. Because then it means whoever has the power determines what's right. And that leads either to anarchy, where everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And we've seen some of that happening in America on university campuses and cities. Or it leads to totalitarian oppression and injustice. It matters what you believe about where you came from. And we see all these issues in our culture today. A lot of people think they're the problem, but they're not the problem. They're the symptom of the problem. 
The problem is at the foundational level of what we believe about where we came from, and in particular what we believe about this book. And for the last 200 years, atheists and deists have hijacked science. They've brainwashed virtually the whole world, and we're going to talk about this tomorrow morning. I'm going to show you that that's what has happened. They've brainwashed virtually the whole world into believing that science is only possible within an atheistic worldview. And that's the way it's taught in our schools. We have Christian teachers in the schools, but their hands are tied. They have to teach the curriculum. And the curriculum is an atheistic view. And they have been hammering away at Genesis 1 to 11. It is the most attacked part of the Bible over the last 200 years. And during those 200 years, many Christian leaders have helped to destroy the foundation by telling the church, oh, it doesn't matter. The age of the earth, don't worry about that. Just believe that God created and believe in Jesus. Many Christian leaders have become concerned about the moral issues and said, we've got we've to resist these things in the culture. And I agree with those things, but the problem is many of the Christian leaders who are telling the church to fight the moral issues are also telling the church, oh, but it doesn't matter what you believe about the age of the earth or evolution. So there's a battle going on. But it's not simply a battle of evolution versus creation. It's really a battle of, of uh, man's word against God's word. The words of scientists who were not there at the beginning, who were not there during the millions of years, they talk about as if they saw it all with their own eyes, who don't know everything. You realize that? That's why they're scientists. They don't know everything. Who make mistakes. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that every few years in every state in America, the state boards of education vote on new textbooks for, for the schools? Why do they do that? Because there are mistakes in the textbooks. Those of you who are my age or older, let me let you in on a little secret. The textbooks you had in high school, they don't use those anymore because they got mistakes in them. So they weren't there at the beginning. They don't know everything. They make mistakes. And most scientists are just like most people in the world. They're in rebellion against their creator, trying to explain the world without God. It's a battle of man's word against God's word. Who was there at the beginning? Who was there all the way through history? Who knows everything? Who always tells the truth? Who never makes mistakes? And who inspired this book and this book alone to be his revelation so that we would know the truth. The truth about him, the truth about us, the truth about what's wrong with us, the truth about where this world came from, the truth about the key events in history to understand our world, the truth about what he has done about the sin problem and what he will do. It's a battle of man's word against God's word. And we're not bombarded with cannonballs. We're bombarded with ideas through the media, Constantly bombarded with evolution in millions of years. And, tech, and, and books on dinosaurs. There are hundreds of them in our culture. Most of them, except the ones we sell and a few others, they're teaching evolution in millions of years. And then we go to the state and the national parks and all the signs and all the tour guides and all the park rangers, they're all teaching evolution in millions of years. And then we watch the science programs on television. National Geographic, Animal Planet, Beautiful photography of God's creation laced with evolutionary propaganda. 
And then we go to the natural history museums or the schools take our kids to the natural history museums and under every fossil and in every chart, they're talking about evolution in millions of years. And the textbooks teach it as fact and the secular universities teach it as fact. How did we get to this place? Well, John Dewey is called the father of modern American education. You know, prior to the beginning of the 20th century, American children were educated either at home or in small little country schools. But Dewey was responsible for the development of our modern public school systems, and he was a signer of the first Humanist Manifesto in 1933. And the first point of that manifesto is, first, religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. That's evolution, atheism. Second, humanism believes that man is a part of nature and that he has emerged as a result of a continuous process. That's human evolution from a little bacterium. And then flowing out of that, their fifth point Humanism asserts that the nature of the universe depicted by modern science makes unacceptable any supernatural or cosmic guarantees of human values. Religion must formulate its hopes and plans in the light of the scientific spirit and method. Translated, oh, you can believe in religion if you want. You can have a religion. You can go to church. You just need to build all your religious thinking on the foundation of evolution and millions of years. And your views on morality needs to be built on that same foundation. A lot of people think that Charles Darwin is the problem today. There are a lot of Christians who think we've got to resist evolution. We've got to resist human evolution. And I agree with that. And we're going to talk about it tomorrow. But the problem is that many Christians, including many Christian leaders and scholars, are saying that the age of the earth doesn't matter. But Darwin built his ideas on the idea of millions of years. And we'll see that tomorrow. But not only are our secular schools and universities teaching this, most Christian colleges and seminaries in the world are also teaching kids. Look, one of the the first things you need to learn is that you can't trust that part of the Bible. That's mythology. You know, just like Pastor was talking about, you know, those ancient Near Eastern creation and flood myths, The Jews were just like the Babylonians and the Syrians and Egyptians. They had their stories. These are pre-scientific ideas. So how does the church respond? Well, the church teaches the Bible. Now you say, isn't that what the church should do? Yes, but the problem is how most churches teach the Bible. They just teach Bible stories. They teach about Adam and Eve, the creation of the world, the flood of Noah, Joshua walking around Jericho, the Exodus, Jesus walking on water. You say, well, shouldn't they teach those stories? Yes, but the problem is how most churches are teaching it. They're just teaching it as Bible stories, kind of equivalent to Hansel and Gretel and the Tooth Fairy. What's happening in the schools? Well, they're teaching the curriculum. And they're teaching the kids, this is the true history of the world. The Big Bang, billions of years, evolution. And most churches aren't teaching any apologetics. They're not giving any answers to the kids and their parents to deal with this, what's being taught. 
But in the school, they're teaching apologetics because they're giving the kids what they call evidence for millions of years and evolution. And so what's happening is, in this country, in, in many, many countries, virtually all over the world, children are growing up in Bible-believing homes and churches, but in most of those homes and churches, they're not being given any answers. And so by the time they graduate from high school, they've been evolutionized. And their parents have been evolutionized because they come home and say, Mom and Dad, you were in school 30, 40 years ago. You don't understand. They've got overwhelming scientific evidence that we evolved from an ape. It's overwhelming evidence that, that the earth is millions of years old. And the parents begin to believe it. And so we have huge numbers of people walking away from the faith and many who are staying in the church are doctrinally and morally confused. And so we're in a battle. The foundations uh, have been under assault for 200 years. And so that's why God has raised up answers in Genesis and the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter, the Institute for Creation Research, the Creation Research Society, and other organizations in this country and in other countries to help rebuild the foundations, to help the church uh, understand and believe that, that we can believe this book right from the very first verse. And so Peter tells the Christians in the first century, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. That word make a defense is a translation of apologia, from which we get the word apology and the word apologetics. And it doesn't mean apology in the sense of, well, gee, I'm really sorry that I'm a Christian and that I believe this. It's the idea of a defense attorney in a court giving a defense of his client. And we need to give a defense for why we believe what we believe. And so we've brought a number of resources to help, help you uh, to have answers. The Lie by Ken Ham, our founder and president, is... Uh, explains in very simple language why the church cannot compromise with evolution and millions of years. The book Already Gone will help you understand why we're losing the next generation and what you can do about it in your family and in your church. The book Already Gone, why those who are staying are, uh, are doctrinally confused and compromised. The book Gospel Reset, a brand new book by Ken saying the gospel doesn't change. It never changes. But the context in which we proclaim that gospel and the obstacles and barriers to people believing that gospel changes at different times and in different places. And today, the number one, the biggest obstacle to people believing the gospel is the teaching of evolution in millions of years. We have a number of answers books. These are for teenagers and adults. They answer the 130 most asked questions. Where did Cain get his wife? Where did the so-called races come from? What about dinosaurs? Doesn't carbon-14 prove millions of years? And what about natural selection? And don't mutations produce evolution? These are the kinds of questions people are asking today. Each chapter is on a different question. You don't need a science degree to understand the answers. Teenagers and, and uh, high school students should have these uh, college students, but parents should have them so that they can have answers. 
If you don't like to read, we have uh, answers DVDs that answer about a third of those questions with five to seven minute answers by the various contributing authors. We have answers books for the grade school kids. Each one answers about 20 questions with a one-page answer. Great for parents and grandparents to discuss these things with the children. And the beauty of these books is you don't have to let the kids know that you don't know the answer to the question because it's right there on the opposite page. So you can learn as they're learning. I think we have out there quick answers to tough questions. Uh, not simple answers, but quick answers to about 12 of the, of the most common tough questions. A lecture similar to what I've just given tonight is Darwinian Evolution, Religion of Death, where I use quotes from Charles Darwin's own writings to show the devastating impact of his ideas. I also have a lecture, Biblical Creation, Strengthening Your Defenses, which explains that the Bible really does teach creation in six days and a few thousand years ago, and then shows what's wrong with the gap theory, the day-age view, the framework hypothesis, and the various objections that Christians raise against the young earth view uh, biblically. Check this out, uh, DVD, is eight, six mini-videos, just uh, three to five minutes long on various topics, including uh, the dating methods and why is there death and suffering in the world and the origin of races. Ken Ham's book, Six Days, uh, goes into a little more depth of what's wrong with all those old earth views in the church and, and what the Bible really teaches. And then coming to grips with Genesis, which I uh, co-edited and contributed to with 13 other scholars, most of them seminary professors, defending the young earth view in an in-depth way biblically and historically. The Bible teaches young earth creation, whether you're reading the Bible in English as a five-year-old or you're reading the Bible in Hebrew as a Hebrew scholar. A is for Adam, D is for dinosaur, N is for Noah, for preschool kids, dinosaurs for kids, for kids of all ages. And any book or DVD out there, uh, you can combine together and, uh, and save money, make your own combinations. So we just want to get those resources out. We have an Answers magazine that comes six times a year, beautiful full-color magazine with a center section for the really little kids, teaching a biblical worldview, not just on creation, but a lot of different topics, uh, building a biblical worldview. And you can buy the uh, current edition for $3.95, or better yet, you can subscribe. And if you subscribe to the print edition, you can get the uh, digital subscription free, and it's searchable, so you can use that on any of your devices in your home. And you can sign up for that in uh, the book tables. Ken Ham's Foundation Series is six best talks, divided in half, makes a uh, 12-week series, comes with a teacher's guide and student workbooks. And the Begin book, which has uh, Genesis 1 to 11, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, and uh, then the Gospel of John, the Book of Romans, and the last two chapters of Revelation. Sandwiched between those scripture portions is a summary of the biblical history that ties it all together. And then it has an article at the end that answers 10 of the most asked skeptical questions and presents the gospel. So a great little book to, to give to a non-Christian or a young Christian. And uh, normally it's $13, but it's just $3 here at the, at the seminar. We have a newsletter that comes uh, 12 times a year. It's free. You can sign up for that on the book tables. We have over 10,000 articles on our website, and just about any uh, question you could think of has been answered. 
and encourage you to pick up a brochure on the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter and plan to visit. Well, let me summarize then. Evolution in millions of years, does it really matter? Yes, those ideas destroy any basis for morality. They contradict the Bible's teaching on death. They make the gospel unbelievable, and they undermine the reliability and authority of the Bible. And what the Bible teaches and what real science confirms, as we'll be showing uh, in, in our sessions tomorrow, and what our culture is increasingly revealing to us is that evolution and millions of years are destructive lies. And so I urge you to, to pick up some resources, and I urge you to come back tomorrow and uh, bring, a, bring a friend, because we're going to get into some of the science and the history of how we got into this situation. Well, God bless you, and I hope to see you tomorrow.